You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 4. Good morning again. If you don't have a Bible, you can um, grab one of the ones around you. In the seat back, uh, I'm going to not throw the, the primary text on the screen that we're going to be working through, so it's going to be really beneficial for you if you um, have a Bible to, to follow along with us. If you don't know where Judges is, it's the seventh book of the Bible. Um, if you get to Samuel or Kings, you've gone too far. Go back the other way, about around page 200 or so. Um, we're going to get there in a second. Before we do that, I want to turn our attention to something that was on the announcement video that I'm personally super excited about, um, and that's our, our Specs training series. just want to explain that a bit, a little bit. Um, we say at the church that CBC exists to glorify God by equipping people to follow Christ through community in the Bible. And so here's what's underneath that. It means that you and I as Christians are a commissioned people, right? We're not a stagnant people, but the Bible says that, that Jesus, by his grace, God, by his grace to us through Christ, has drawn us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, not so that we would just sit in it and enjoy it, but we've been drawn out of the world so that we can sit, be sent right back into it. In Matthew 28, Jesus, after dying on the cross for our sins and resurrecting from the dead, and right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he gathers his closest followers to himself. And what's he say to them? Go and make disciples. Right? It's this idea of go and make followers of Jesus that we are drawn out so we can be sent back in. And so we want to glorify God at this church by equipping people, by helping people follow Jesus. So the way that we do that is, um, or at least the, the, the goal at our church, you've probably heard this before, our specs. There's kind of these five core values that we, we say, hey, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, these are the things that you need to be paying attention to. These are the things that you need to be leaning into. So our specs, that's an acronym if you're new to our church. So it's scripture and prayer and engage and community and stewardship. So these are five things that we say, hey, if you're following after Jesus, are you growing here? These are things you need to be paying attention to. This is how we want to help you follow Jesus, primarily in these five areas. And so, man, I'm super excited about this training class that we're going to have in two weeks. We're going to do one a month, and so we'll announce those dates as, uh, in, a couple, in the weeks ahead. But on February 17th, we're going to do the first one, and we're starting with Scripture. We're not going to go in order on all of them, but we're starting with this training seminar of learning to read the Bible together. And I'm really excited about it because my guess is, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, or we're going to avoid that guilt and shame today, but um, I, I could probably say, hey, who started a Bible reading plan this year? Hands go up. Hey, how many people are still doing it? A lot of them are probably going down, right? Because most of us have a desire to read the Bible. We have a desire to hear from God, but we have a very difficult time finding any sort of consistency in that. And so my hope, our hope in these training seminars will be Sunday of one time from four to six, not because it wouldn't be worth your time to do it for six weeks or for eight weeks, but because we want to create an opportunity for as many of our people to get in one space as possible and have two kind of primary takeaways. One, that you would walk in, or that, sorry, that you would walk out uh, knowing the Bible more than you know it today. Right, that you would leave go, hey, I know the word of God better now than I did when I walked in. And the second thing would be a confidence that when you leave, you can take this book right here and open it on your own and, and read it and hear from God. That's our goal in this event. So I would encourage you to come. If you're a member, I would highly encourage it. If you're not, we would love to have you. We will have childcare, but you need to register on the website for that. This is why I'm, I'm telling you this. 
The registration is available on the website. We want to make it, 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 remove all the barriers for you to come to this as possible. So if you have kids, you need to register, let us know. CBCSavannah.com, training, you can find it there. If you have questions, come and find me after. I'd love to help with that. I hope to see as many of you there as possible. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Judges 4. Father, we just sang it. That it is easy for our, our eyes to turn away from you and to forget. And it is easy for us to chase after things that aren't good. And so my hope and prayer in this time is that you would help us feel the tension there. Feel that conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit and not sit in that shame but be driven toward hope in the gospel. So as we open Judges 4, would you help us to read the words from you and to understand what you're saying to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Judges chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, and the people of Israel, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagaim. Nailed it. Then the people of Israel. <laughs> verse three. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had he Sisera had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. So, if you have been here with us for this series through the Book of Judges, you're probably starting to notice a pattern. And what we just read in verse 1 should sound really familiar to you. It's what we've seen a lot, particularly in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7 should be on the screen. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's what we just read in chapter 4, verse 1, right? So there's this pattern. And Bill mentioned this in weeks past, but this phrase here, when it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that evil translates literally the evil. Which means that the, the point there is that Israel, God's people, they're not just messing up. They're not just doing the wrong things every now and again, but they've holistically turned away from following God, turned away from worshiping Him and remembering Him, and they've turned and given themselves to other lowercase g, other pagan gods, right? So as a consequence for their sin, the Bible says that God sells them into the hand of their enemy. In this case, in chapter 3, it's the king of Mesopotamia, okay? And that's in the east, and that is important here in a second, you'll see. So the people of God, they served in this servitude to the king of Mesopotamia. They served him for eight years. So eight years of their lives enslaved, eight years of their lives being oppressed, not being able to live and walk in the fullness of what God had promised them, but eventually they cry out to God for help. And in his mercy, despite their rebellion, God hears their cries and he raises up for them a judge. He raises up for them a deliverer. And so they enter for the first time into this sin cycle, as we've been calling it. I think we have a slide for that. But it's this pattern that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Judges. That the people of God forget the Lord, they sin against him, and they are given over to be conquered by their enemies. They're forced into what we call servitude, right? And then at some point they realize that, hey, the problems that we have aren't something we can do or accomplish on our own. And so we need help. Let us turn to God. So they turn to God for help. They cry out to him in their sorrow. They cry out to God. And in his mercy, he hears them. I'm going to say that over and over and over again today because we can't afford to miss this. That in his mercy, he hears them. 
that their cries don't fall on deaf ears, but our God is moved with compassion and he sends them a savior. And this savior delivers God's people out of bondage by conquering the enemy. And chapter three, verse 11 kind of shows how that cycle comes full circle. It says, so the land had rest for 40 years. Another way to translate that would be to say that the earth had peace. Right? The earth had peace for 40 years. They lived without oppression, right? 40 years without a reason to in that gut-wrenching moment have to turn to God because they have no other way out, right? 40 years of not turning to God for help because life was great. And just real quick, man, if you're struggling to go, hey, what does any of this have to do with us? Isn't this what we do? How quick are we to complain to God when life isn't going the way that we want it to? God, where are you? God, how could you? And don't get me wrong, those aren't bad prayers. They're not. God has invited us to bring our request to him. But on the other side of that coin, how quick are we to turn to God and thank him when life is going the way we want it to? When life goes well, we think we did that. When life goes bad, then God's to blame. So we get the promotion, it's because we're gifted, because we're skilled, because we work hard, because we're better than the people around us at this specific role. But when we don't get the job, God's to blame. Or someone else, our boss, has an agenda against us, or whatever it is. Verse 11 says, so the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, who was that first deliverer that God raised up, he died, verse 12, and the people of Israel again they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, they forgot him. They forgot their God. They forgot that in their sorrow, in their moment of desperation, God heard their cry and he rescued them from slavery. Right, just like you and I have a tendency to do. You get a little bit removed from that moment of desperation and all of a sudden, you forget him. Life gets too easy, gets too comfortable and all of a sudden, after four decades of peace, they gradually drift away from the Lord their God and they jump right back on the cycle. Right? They do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the cycle starts over. And this time, instead of the king of Mesopotamia, the, the enemy from the east, verse 12 says, that God strengthens Eglon, we covered this last week, the king of Moab, to rise up against Israel. So at first they're attacked from the east and now here comes an enemy from the south, but this time instead of eight years, they serve Eglon for 18 years. And after 18 years of trying on their own to fix these problems, the mess they were in, they finally remember the Lord and they cry out to him. And again, our God, in his mercy, he hears their cries. And God raises up for them a deliverer, a man named Ehud. So as a result of his courage and because of his leadership, verse 30 of chapter 3 says that Israel was able to subdue Moab and the land this time had rest for 80 years. So one thing to note about the book of Judges is that it isn't just a, a, a chronology, if that's even a word, of Israel's history, okay? It's not just trying to say, hey, here's what's happened to Israel. The author is trying to construct history in such a way to communicate a point. And so the next part of the story, what we're gonna get to in chapter four, that's the next part in Israel's timeline. But before we get there, there's this interjection in verse 31 about this guy named Shamgar, this random guy who we know nothing about, who kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat, which is basically a shepherd's staff that has a pointy end that's dipped in metal, right? We covered this last week. And the question we have to answer is why? Why are we following Israel's history chronologically and then we interject a guy named Shamgar 
And I think the reason why is because of where this enemy that Shamgar's fighting was from. There's a map of this on the screen. There should be. And the point the author is driving is the Philistines, if you can see there, are from the west. So you have this enemy that came from the east, and now this enemy that comes from the south, and now there's this enemy that comes from the west, but it's not just there, that there is this progression that comes with disobedience and sin towards God. That is, and a spoiler alert is it doesn't get any easier for us to overcome. That, and when we sin and disobey against God, it's not just the same type of thing over and over and over again, but it moves itself down the, the line. The enemy doesn't just keep coming from the same direction time and time again. So as we see in the book of Judges, the enemy comes from the east, and then it comes from the south, and it's progressing. It's eight years, and then it's 18 years, and now it's from the west, and it's also from the north. That's what we see here at the beginning of chapter 4. What we read earlier, we find out that in Israel, again, they forget the Lord their God, and again, they're right back on the cycle. But this time, the enemy is not just coming from the Philistines. It's also the king of Canaan, which is in Hazor, which is north of Israel. So the attack is two sides. But they're not just being oppressed this time. The Bible we just read in chapter 4, verse 3 says that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. Right? This is a word in the original language that means always with force. He oppressed them incessantly. He oppressed them ruthlessly. And we have an idea of why King Jabin had such of a grudge against Israel because we've heard this name before. So in Joshua chapter 11, Joshua's leading the people of Israel and the army of Israel into the land to take conquest of the land. And we're going to talk more about this in a second. But Joshua 11 says this in verse 10. Joshua turned back at that time and he captured Hazor. It's the same city we're talking about in chapter 4 of Judges. He struck its king Jabin. Again, this is a name like Pharaoh. This isn't like a proper name like Clint. This is Pharaoh. This is the king of, the, of Hazor. King Jabin, he struck him with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. So not only did Israel defeat the Canaanites in Hazor, but they burned the city to the ground. This is a demoralizing defeat, right? And so here we are about 100 years later when we get to the beginning of the book of Judges, and now somehow the Canaanites have regained their strength. And then in, in uh, Judges 1 verse 17, it says this, And Judah went with Simeon and his brother, and they defeated Canaan. So we're fighting Canaan again, okay? We talked about this in week one, that what happens in the book of Judges is that God's people get this clear direction from him to go and to take the conquest of the land, to drive out the inhabitants of the land and they start out strong but then it starts to get more difficult and the enemy starts to kind of make it more difficult for them and so they start to make compromises verse 19 says this I promise all this is going to make sense when we get to chapter 4 <laughs> verse 19 says this and the Lord was with Judah and he Judah took possession of the hill country but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain this is verse uh, 19 of chapter 1 because they had chariots of iron. Okay, so that's a shout, that should sound familiar to us because what we just read in chapter 4 is that Israel is now being ruthlessly oppressed by another King Jabin because he had 900 chariots of iron. And here's why that's significant, because chariots of iron in the day were like the, the top of military advancement, the top of military technology. It would be like having tanks fighting against foot soldiers, right? So with the help of the Lord, Judah takes possession of the hill country where these, these chariots aren't as effective, but he did not take possession of the plain because that's where it was more difficult. That's what we need to pay attention to. So he makes compromise. Verse 19 says he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, but what it should say is he would not. 
because it was too hard. It was too risky. And even though God told them he would be with them in the fight, they move on and they compromise. And so here we are in Judges 4, at least 150 years after Judah and Simeon failed to drive out the Canaanites there. And the people of Israel, their descendants, are dealing with the consequences of their forefather's sin. So only this time we have another King Jabin who now has this grudge against Israel and he's cruelly oppressing God's people. And the point I want you to hear in all of that fact is that this is what sin does. It doesn't stay the same. And there is a progression to it. That it starts with little compromise, right? It starts with one enemy coming at us from one direction, something we completely can handle. It's that thing when someone's talking to you, hey, what's going on in your life? Well, I got this thing, but I got it under control. Right, it starts in one direction, but sin will always overpromise and underdeliver because before you know it, you're surrounded. There's a great quote that captures this idea. I'm not sure who said it. Um, I looked, and there's like six different people who have claim to it. So I'm just going to say that, and then we're going to read this because I think this captures this for us. It says, "Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay." And here's the point. No one just wakes up one day and decides to leave their family for someone else. Like that, that starts a little bit at a time. Little compromises with one glance, one lingering thought, one text message, but does it ever stop there? The answer is no, not unless you do something about it. This is why Jesus goes so hard on this idea in Matthew chapter five. He says, if you if your right eye causes you to sin, then you tear it out and you throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then you cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than it would be for your whole body to go to hell. This is what I meant about sin always over-promising and under-delivering because at first it's, it's just innocent office flirting, right? And it gives you a rush, but then all of a sudden, that rush doesn't come from just flirting, so you need more. So then it's just one kiss, and then it's just one night, and before you know it, you're in too deep. You're surrounded by the enemy, and you either feel so guilty that you're sick to your stomach, or somehow you convince yourself that the vows that you made before God don't matter anymore because this person makes you feel better than she does, or he does. This is how this happens. Sin is a progression, and if that feels too harsh, Please know that I am not trying to heap shame on you this morning. I am not, right? What I'm doing is pleading with you that if you are in a season of your life right now where you are making little compromises, I want to love you enough to be honest with you that the Bible says cut it off. Whatever it takes, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, delete the number, quit your job, stop going to the bar after work. Whatever it is for you. Whatever it costs, it's better for you to lose that thing now than to lose everything down the road because that's where it's headed. And ultimately what this comes down for all of us, comes down to for all of us is a simple question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him that what God has for you is better than the life that you can build on your own because sin will take you farther than you want to go and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. And here's what's probably the most devastating part of this is that it won't just cost you, right? That Judah's compromise is costing his family hundred of years after he dies. 
And in the same way, you and I are dealing with the generational sins of our parents and our grandparents. And some of us are walking in patterns of sins right now that are going to affect our children for generations. The Bible says cut it off. It's not worth it. This is what sin does. It always demands more from you and it will never deliver on what it promises. So if you're in the thick of it this morning, right, if you're walking in the season where you've made compromises and you feel like you are surrounded by the enemy, I want you to be encouraged by Judges 4. This is what I mean. Don't feel shame from this. Be encouraged by this because despite Israel's sin, despite their inability to remember their God, they are surrounded by the enemy. When they turn to him, when they cry out to him, in his mercy, he hears them. Right? He hears our cries in our desperation, in our inability to do what he says we should do. He hears our cries, and he sends us a Savior. And if you hear anything this morning or you see anything in the pages of Scripture, you hear this, that God hasn't given up on you and he never will. He sees you, he hears you, and he has sent you a Savior. Look at verse 3. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh, Naphtali, and she said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men and Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So what's happening here is the people of God In their sorrow and under this cruel oppression of this guy named Sisera, they remember the Lord their God, they cry out to him, and God sends them a judge. And just to clarify, this word judge is not how we use it most of the time when we think of a courtroom. It's how we've been kind of associating it with this word deliverer, right, savior. And this is what we've seen so far up to this point with the judges in chapter 3 of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. They were either military leaders or some kind of soldiers, or at least they used their, their force that way. That they saved, they delivered Israel with military force, but Judges 4 is different. That not only is our judge here not a soldier, but there's something else that sets her apart, and that it should be obvious now that right, she's a woman. Verse 4 says that she is a prophetess. This means that in those days, she was the mouthpiece of God. She was the instrument chosen by God to bring his word to his people. And we just read in verse 5 that that is what she did, right? That she posted up under this palm tree or this palm grove in the hill country of Ephraim. And people were coming from all over Israel for judgment. Which means really that they came to her for wisdom. People were coming to her for wisdom. And so, oftentimes what you'll see with this is that people or pastors will use Judges 4 to try to make their point about what they believe about the role of women in ministry. That's how they'll use Judges 4. And to be honest, I understand why, okay? Because like we said, this is a unique situation. She's the only female judge. She is one of only three prophets in the Old Testament that's female. And she's clearly been gifted by God and appointed by him to help lead the people of Israel. 
And so I understand why people go there, but I don't think Judges 4 is about the role of women in ministry. I think what it's about, first and foremost, is about how God uses unexpected means to accomplish incredible things. That's what I think Judges 4 is about, and we're going to see that here in a second. But what I don't want to do is, since that error is oftentimes made with Judges 4, I don't want to completely sidestep it. I think there's a, a role for us to dig into as the church, because what people do in Judges 4 is one of two things. They'll either use it to diminish the distinct roles that God has given men and women, or they'll use it to demean or devalue the specific and unique ways that God has and will continue to gift women to lead his people. They'll do one of those two things. And there's this dichotomy, this false dichotomy that exists in the church, and we have to reject both sides of it. Because what's clear in Scripture is that God has created men and women completely equal, and yet he has given them distinct roles to play. And so our hope, our desire at CBC is that we would encourage our women and equip our women and empower the ladies in our church to use their gifts to serve the people around them because where that doesn't happen, the church of Jesus Christ will cease to flourish the way that God says it should. And you and I will miss out where women are empowered and equipped and encouraged to lead and not just in the home. Where that doesn't exist, we fail to see the beauty of God's design to create us male and female complement one another, equal in value, and yet uniquely bearing the image of God. So Judges 4, we have this crazy gifted woman, right? Deborah, this prophetess who speaks the words of God to his people and the whole nation of Israel. They're coming to her for wisdom, and she's hearing about the distress of the people of God because of the, the Canaanite occupation, right? And so Deborah sends for this guy named Barak, what we just read. We don't know much about this guy, but from the text, what we can tell is he also is some sort of military leader. And verse 6, 6 says that he was from Kadesh and Naphtali, which means that he was from the north as well, where Canaanite occupation was the most difficult. So he was from where life was the hardest for the people of Israel. And so Deborah hears about what's going on. She sends for Barak, and when he gets there, she says to him, has not the Lord commanded you to go? Right? She gives him some specific detail about God's plan to deliver his people. She says, take 10,000 from the tribes of Zebulun and from Naphtali and take them to Mount Tabor, which was this super steep kind of hill, basically, like 1,500 feet. But this mountain, this super steep mountain that overlooked the Kishon River and what's called the Jezreel Valley, which was the plains that we were talking about that Judah refused to drive out the inhabitants of. So she says, hey, you do that. Then she says, when you get there, when you get to Mount Tabor, God is going to, God is going to draw out Sisera and his army with his chariots and his troops, and he will give him into your hand. So there's a little bit of a differing opinion about what's actually going on here between this conversation between Deborah and Barak. And she says, has not the Lord commanded you to go? So one is she saying, hey, buddy, what you waiting for? Or two, is, she, is this the first time that Barak is hearing about what God wants him to do? And I think it's the first one because of what happens next in the story. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, it might be Barak, but I'm just going with Barak, just so you know. All right. <laughs> if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless... The road on which you are going, it will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So this conversation between them 
kind of starts out, and again, she's saying, hasn't God told you to go? That he would sell Sisera into your hand, and then Barak responds, and he says, or Barak responds, and he says, no. Right, he, or sorry, he doesn't say no, what does he do? He says, starts putting these conditions on his obedience. He starts saying, hey, I'll go, I'll do what you're saying that God says that I should do, I'll do it, but I'm only gonna do it if you go with me. All of a sudden, he starts to try to negotiate, okay? So this reminds me of my son. He's three years old, um, his name is Zeke, and he is, and this is, he's much smarter than I think any three-year-old should be, okay? At least the three-year-old that I can handle, all right? So he, he's just, he just, all of a sudden he starts trying to negotiate. So here's, here's an example. We, we were playing one day uh, recently in our living room, and we converted our dining room, took the table out of there, and just made it a playroom because when you have little kids, you're not eating the dining room table, right? Most of the time, I just cook grilled cheese in a, in a pan, and then he just eats it out of the pan, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, don't get crazy. Um, but we're playing in the living room. All the toys uh, made it from the playroom. All nice string. It's like if you tried to place toys in our home, more like more toys, you you would have a hard time. It was just everywhere. Okay, so we're playing in the living room and we're we're going forward or whatever. And he gets this idea, this this brilliant look on his face. He's super excited. You know, he goes, "Hey, I have an idea." He started doing that. I have an idea. Let's go to the playground. You know, I'm like, "Hey, that's a good idea." We have a little neighborhood playground, son. I'm off today, I would love to take you to the playground, but before we go, we gotta put these toys back where they go, right? And all of a sudden, all the excitement he had about the playground was gone, and he channeled it into negotiations, okay? So he starts out, hey daddy, what if you pick the toys up, because I'm shorter, and you're better at it. And I stand back and go, he's right, you know? I should probably just do this, but as a good dad, I want to enter in, so we kind of go back and forth. He comes up with a new plan. He's like, well, this, what if we just did it later, right? So he's negotiating, and eventually we compromise. He says, okay, I'll pick up the toys if you help me, right? Which means that I did it, and he supervised. But this is what's happening. <laughs> this is what Barak is doing, right? God gives him this command and this promise that he, God says, I will rescue Israel out from under Sisera's oppression. Here's what you need to do, and he hesitates. Which honestly, can you blame him here? Because this was a suicide mission, gather 10,000 men to the top of Mount Tabor and then go down into the valley to fight Sisera's army where those chariots are the most effective. He's thinking there's no way, right? Plus he knows, hey, Judas tried this before, it didn't work for him, why would it work for me? And so when she reminds him, has not the Lord commanded you to go, he starts trying to negotiate. He says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And he starts trying to put uh, conditions on his obedience to God. And so Deborah responds in verse 9. She said, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going, it will not lead to your glory. So the plan now changes, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And what we need to see in this is what's motivating this conditional obedience in, in Barak is the same thing that's motivating Judah to make compromises when he failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land to stop short of what God told him to do. What motivates that for both of them is an unwillingness to believe that above all else, our God can be trusted. Right, that those moments where I go, I'll go this far, but I'm not going there because I'm not so sure about that. God, are you sure? Start trying to hesitate, putting conditions on your obedience. Start trying to negotiate with God, saying, hey, I'll do that if you do this. Right, and we've been there before, right? An unwillingness to believe that above all else, our God can be trusted even in things that seem impossible. 
Man, I love this narrative in Judges 4 because there is no earthly, earthly reason to think that the Israelites would have won this battle. But as we said before, the point of this chapter is about how God uses unexpected means to accomplish incredible things. And so Barak and Deborah, they go and they gather the troops of Israel, they head to Mount Tabor. And when Sisera gets word that this is happening, he starts licking his lips. He's going, I got them right where I want them. And so he draws all of his chariots and all of his military force and his troops out into the Kishon River Valley. And he kind of gets in this battle formation and, and, and uh, Barak and Deborah and 10,000 troops of Israel up, up on Mount Tabor. And he's just, just begging them to come out, come get some of this, right? He's taunting them, trying to drive fear into them and it works. And then look at verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. So she reminds him of the command of God and she encourages him to remember the promise of God. She says, does not the Lord go out before you? Right after that, does not the Lord go out before you? And what she's saying there, what are you waiting for? Right? God said he's gonna be with you. God promised he's gonna give Sisera into your hand. I know it doesn't look possible, but what are you waiting for? Ultimately, do you not trust God? God has said that he'll give you the victory, essentially she's reminding him that God can be entrusted in possible, trusted in no matter how impossible things may seem, because nothing is impossible with God. Look at verse 14. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth, Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword so that not a man was left. And so in these impossible ways and with this crazy turn of events, God gives Israel victory over their enemy. And what's interesting is verse 15 says that the Lord routed Sisera and his army. So this word routed here, it, it means to bring into confusion, right? It means to cause to panic. And what we learn in chapter five about this, this narrative, it's kind of a song that Deborah writes and sings so that the people of Israel won't forget what God had done so they will remember the Lord their God. She writes this song and in chapter five we learn that what God did was, despite the fact that this was the dry season for them, which is not a culture we live in, we don't have dry and rainy seasons, it's always rainy season here, that's what I'm learning. Um, but they had these super dry seasons where the ground, especially down in the valley, would become very compact, like concrete, again, very advantageous for fighting with chariots there, and that's where they were in. So despite the fact that they were in the dry season, chapter five says God sends a severe storm that causes the river to flood and the plains to become mud, basically. And all of a sudden, this military advantage of iron chariots was gone, and in fact, it becomes a liability. The Lord routed Sisera and his army and caused him to panic, and so Sisera's out of options, and he abandons his army to try to save his own life. And so here's the point of this for us. Every single one of us will be continually faced in our life with the decision of whether or not we will trust God. In small moments and in big ones, will we build our lives on the promises of God or will we try to do it our own way? And now most days those decisions are gonna be simple, right? But, and they're gonna seem insignificant, but as we covered before, those little compromises can have huge effect on the trajectory of our lives and the people around us. 
And so most days it'll be little decisions, but this is where the drift starts. Little compromises, small hesitations towards being obedient to the word of God. And before you know it, you're surrounded. You're in too deep and it feels like there's no way out except for to give up. And so like Sisera, you jump down and you're gone. I can't do this anymore, God. I tried and I'm out. But it doesn't have to be that way. Most decisions or most days it'll be little decisions, but sometimes it's going to be the big things where we have to decide if God can be trusted or not. Right? And on those days, when you are standing on the mountain, right, looking down at what seems absolutely impossible, it's going to be on those days you'll think to yourself, do I trust him enough for this? And let me just say this. I think most of us, we live under this illusion that even though we are unwilling to trust God in the little small moments of our lives, we think that ultimately when it comes down to it, we'll trust him when it counts. We still believe that we'll trust God when, when we have to draw the line, but again, this is not how sin and disobedience works. It's a progression. God isn't interested in your negotiations. He isn't looking for your conditional obedience. He is willing right now in this moment to give every bit of himself to you, but he is asking the very same thing from you. And Deborah says in verse 14, up. For this is the day, does not the Lord go out before you? This word up here, it means stand firm. It means arise. It means now is not the time to compromise. No matter how hopeless the situation you're in might feel, no matter how far gone you think you are, or how long it's been for you since you've remembered the Lord your God, if you cry out to him, he will in his mercy hear you. And those cries will not fall on deaf ears, for he has sent us a savior. And where Sisera abandons his people to save his own life, Jesus abandons his own life for the salvation of his people. And we get to rest in that promise that this is what he has accomplished for us. So the point of application for us today as you consider what Judges 4 has to do with you is you ask yourself the question, can God be trusted? And if the answer is yes, then, then it's not just in the big things that he can be trusted. And it's not just in the little things that can be trusted, but it's in every moment in between. And we need to stop trying to negotiate with him. Like the rest of Israel, we go to the prophet S. Deborah for wisdom, and we hear her encouragement to Barak and take it as our own, where she says, hey, what are you waiting for? We stop trying to hedge our bets with Jesus. We push all our chips in on him. And I know it seems risky, and I know at times it feels impossible, but he can be trusted. And so the story continues. Sisera's army is destroyed. But the Bible says, we just read, that Sisera begins to flee on foot, right? And he runs to this nearby village, which is basically this little backwood camping town, okay, and this guy named Heber. And so... Basically, all we know about this is that Heber had made some sort of treaty with King Jabin. So Sisera is running for his life. He's going, hey, where am I going to go? I know I'll go to Heber's camp because I know there I'll be safe. Verse, verse 17 says that Sisera shows up at the tent of a woman named Jael, who, again, we know nothing about her except for she was married to Heber. And so she's, he's expecting to be safe. So Sisera runs to her and she goes, hey, will you hide me, basically? So we don't have time for this, but you should definitely read this later. It is a crazy story, a little light afternoon reading before Super Bowl tonight. Um, 
but Jael agrees to hide him. Sisera's exhausted from fighting for his life and from scrambling, running away, right? You can imagine the, he's just panting, he's, he's dying of thirst. He asks her for some water. Jael gives him some milk, sings him a little lullaby, a little warm milk, right? She covers him with a blanket and he passes out from his exhaustion. And you're like, that's your definition of a crazy story? Um, well, here's where it goes sideways, okay? While he's sleeping, Jael takes a hammer and a, a tent peg or a tent stake, and verse 21 says, then she went softly to him and she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep in weariness, so he died. I don't think that last bit is necessary, okay? <laughs> and behold, as Barak, verse 22, was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, hey, come and I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Right, so all of a sudden, Barak remembers in that moment what Deborah told him in verse nine, when she says, hey, Sisera's gonna, oh, the Lord's gonna sell Sisera now into the hand of a woman. And he goes, oh yeah. And in that moment, he knows for a fact that God can be trusted, that his word is true. And we've all had those moments where we think, I'm never gonna do that again. I'm never gonna forget the Lord my God. But here's the thing, it would be awesome if the book of Judges was only four chapters long, right? But it's not, because the cycle continues and God in his mercy, he continues to hear the cry of his people and he sends them a deliverer and as incredible as that is, this deliverance is only temporary. Chapter five, verse 31 says, and after all this, the land had rest for 40 years, which means that again, God's people would forget him. So where does that leave us? The truth is, Judges 4 does reveal to us something about the character and the nature of God, that he hears our cries and he sends us a savior. But the reality is that you and I, on this side of the cross of Christ, we have been given a savior and we will never need another one. Because the deliverance and the salvation that he brings to us is not temporary, it lasts forever. Because where God makes good on his word from Deborah to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, and he uses Jael and her hammer, this tent stake, to secure for his people a salvation that lasts for 40 years, he sends us his son Jesus, the incarnate word, who takes in his hands the stake, the punishment that we deserve to secure for us a salvation that will last forever. We get to remember today, in this moment, I'm not too far gone. My God hears me and he has sent me a savior. Church, what are we waiting for? Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver, but our God can be trusted and we will stand firm no matter the cost. Because the life that he has for us is better than anything that we could build on our own. Let me pray for us. Father, in times like these, it could be easy to be tempted into despair to sit in this feeling of our own sin and shame and guilt for all the times that we've fallen short. And you brought us here this morning to remind us through the pages of scripture and in Judges 4 that when we cry out to you, you hear us. 
And so my hope and prayer in this moment, God, is that you would take us quickly from this moment of despair and shame and move us because of the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the cross, move us to become people of hope. That we are not too far gone. That it is impossible to out the grace of God. So God, we need your help in this. By that power of the Holy Spirit, would you help us to sing and to respond in hope because you say that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.